we're not going to deal with everything. But to give you a taste of what this prophet spoke and the kind of things he said, turn in Micah chapter 3. Now you'll need a Bible this evening. Really, if you don't look at the Bible, then you may as well just close your eyes and drift off gracefully and quietly, alright? Micah chapter 3, page 932 in the Pew Bibles. If it's your own Bible, it's somewhere in the middle. And we're going to read chapter 3 and the first five verses of chapter 4 and it will give you an idea of the contrast in this book. We're going to see the great contrast between messages of judgment interspersed with messages of hope. So let's read together chapter 3. Then I said, that's Micah, listen you leaders of Jacob, you rulers of the house of Israel, should you not know justice you who hate good and love evil, who tear the skin from my people, the flesh from their bones, who eat my people's flesh, strip off their skin and break up their bones in pieces, who chop them up like meat for the pan, like flesh for the pot. Then they will cry out to the Lord, but he will not answer them. At that time he will hide his face from them because of the evil they have done. This is what the Lord says. As for the prophets who lead my people astray, if one feeds them, they proclaim peace. If he does not, they prepare to wage war against him. Therefore, night will come over you without visions and darkness without divinations. The sun will set for the prophets. The the day will go dark for them. The seers will be ashamed and the divine is disgraced. They will all cover their faces because there is no answer from God. But as for me, I am filled with power, with the Spirit of the Lord, and with justice and might to declare to Jacob his transgression, to Israel his sin. Hear this, you leaders of the house of Jacob, you rulers of the house of Israel, who despise justice and distort all that is right, who build Zion with bloodshed and Jerusalem with wickedness. Her leaders judge for a bribe, her priests teach for a price and our prophets tell fortunes for money, yet they lean upon the Lord and say, Is not the Lord among us? No disaster will come upon us. Therefore, because of you, Zion will be ploughed like a field. Jerusalem will become a heap of rubble. The temple hill, a mound overgrown with thickets. In the last days, the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established. As chief among the mountains, it will be raised above the hills. And peoples will stream to it. Many nations will come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways, so that we may walk in his paths. The Lord will go out from Zion, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He will judge between many peoples, and will settle disputes for strong nations far and wide. They will beat their swords into plowshares, and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war any more. Every man will sit under his own vine and under his own fig tree, and no one will make them afraid, for the Lord Almighty has spoken. All the nations may walk in the name of their gods. We will walk in the name of the Lord our God forever and ever. This is the word of the Lord, spoken by Micah. 
spoken also to us. Now before we look at that, let's sing another song that takes up those similar themes. Now let's just pray for a moment and ask God to help us as we look into his word together. Lord, we pray that that same Holy Spirit who inspired Micah to speak your word in the society in which he lived may illuminate our hearts and minds so that we understand his word and apply it to the day in which we live. A very different day and yet there are so many striking similarities. So help me as I try to explain this prophet's message and help us to apply it our own lives for your glory in Jesus name Amen when I start with a bit of background if you open your Bible again right at the beginning of my church page 930 and the opening verse introduces us to Micah and the period in which he lived verse 1 the word of the Lord came to Micah of Moresheth during the reigns of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, the vision he saw concerning Samaria and Jerusalem. We know very little about this prophet. His name was Micah, which means in Hebrew, who is like the Lord. He came from a small town called Moresheth. It's about 25 miles southwest of Jerusalem in a very productive agricultural region so he probably wasn't a city dweller more of a country boy though very well educated as we read the book it's very well written Uh, where he lived was on a major trade route down to Egypt and so caravans trading and armies marching would pass by and so he would have got used to big events taking place as he grew up in this particular part of the world. And these events took part in the second half of the 8th century before Christ. And we can deduce that from the names of the three kings that are listed here. Jotham, Ahaz and Hezekiah. You remember if you've been on this series before, that after King Solomon died, the nation of Israel split into two parts. Israel in the north, with the capital city Samaria, Judah in the south with the capital city of Jerusalem. And these three kings lived in Judah, and Micah himself prophesied in Judah, although his message concerned Samaria as well. If you look at the opening verse again, it says, the vision he saw concerning Samaria and Jerusalem. Should be a time to... Oh, we've come back to that, Andy, that's fine. So what was the situation in those days that caused him so much concern? Why have I called this living through hard times? If we look at the background from the book of Micah and from other contemporary accounts, we discover these were very turbulent days. So look with me first of all at the problems that he faced. The first of these might not seem a problem to most people. It was a problem of material prosperity. At the middle of the 8th century before Christ, there was a period of economic boom in the region. 
unprecedented since the glory days of King Solomon. Commerce and trade prospered, building projects abounded, and fortunes were amassed. So you may ask, what's the problem with that? Won't the politicians be telling us in the next few weeks that that's all that really matters? We will be better off with us than with the other lot. But material prosperity always comes at a cost, a price. First of all, it can so easily become a God in itself and replace the true God in any real commitment to him. One writer comments on this worship of wealth. Martha deals with the development of a commercial and secular culture. And of course, as in most nations today, the people of Israel didn't abandon their religion, they just put it in a compartment, and got in a compartment, and got on with the rest of their lives, which bore no relationship to what they said when they came to church together, or to the temple together. Another writer comments, David Pryor, they had managed to perfect the perennial heresy of compartmentalizing their religious beliefs and practices from their daily occupation and business. But their real God was wealth. Jesus, if you actually look in the Gospels, Jesus spoke so often about the problems of being rich. And he said very clearly, you cannot serve God and money. Matthew 6, 24. But there was a second problem with this material prosperity, and that was how it was acquired. The people of Israel had ancient laws given to them by God, through Moses, you find them in the opening books of the Bible, which were meant to provide a society where there was an equitable share of wealth. The land belonged to God, it was given to families, and no one was supposed to amass vast estates and holdings. In fact, they had what was called the law of the Jubilee. Every 50th year, the land reverted back to the family who originally owned it. But now this law and many others had been abandoned at the time that Marcus spoke, resulting in the second problem of social inequity. So Marcus speaks against those who steal houses and lands and goods. Chapter 2, verse 2. They covet fields and seize them and houses and take them. They defraud a man of his home, a fellow man of his inheritance. He goes on in chapter 2, You strip off the rich robe from those who pass by without a care, like men returning from battle. You drive the women of my people from their pleasant homes. You take away my blessing from their children forever. And added to this, their trading practices are corrupt. Chapter 6, he says, Am I still to forget, O wicked house, your ill-gotten treasures, and the short ether, which is a curse? The ether was a weight. Shall I acquit a man with dishonest scales, with a bag of false weights? So there is material prosperity, but only for the few people at the expense of the many. And Israel, whose, land, whose laws were meant to provide a God-given model of what it was like to relate together in harmony and peace, had become, like all the other nations, wrecked with this social inequity. And along with this is a third problem that increases as Micah continues his ministry into that 8th century. And that is the problem of political instability. The whole region around Israel at this time was in turmoil, for a new and terrible empire was massing on the east. If you were here for our study in the book of Jonah, it was the nation of Assyria. It was gathering strength as Micah began his ministry. And soon it would move from its origins, east of the river Tigris, 
steamrolling its way right through the whole region, trampling subjugating nations and states in its path by means of its massive army, superbly equipped with the world's first great siege machines, manipulated by a very efficient corps of engineers. It was the first great modern army, but allied to that was the fear factor, for the Assyrians were ruthless and cruel, specialising in torture. Their speciality was to skin people alive, and everybody was terrified of them. So fleeing in the path of this Assyrian army, thousands of refugees were pouring over into the border of Israel and Judah. And as is still the case today, when these kind of things happen, one man's loss is another man's profit, as ruthless and greedy people exploited the situation to their own benefit. And so the whole social fabric of life was falling apart, beginning to break down. And Micah says there is no one who is prepared to stand up and be counted. Chapter 7, verse 2. He says, The godly have been swept away from the land. Not one upright man remains. All men lie in wait to shed blood. Each hunts his brother with a net. Imagine living in a society like that. There are still people in our world today who live in that kind of society. But you may ask, what about the leaders of the nation? Aren't they doing anything? What about the politicians? Well, Micah says they're no better than the rest. In fact, they're worse. And Micah condemns the corrupt leaders in scathing terms. We read about it in chapter 3 just now. Then I said, listen, you leaders of Jacob, you rulers of the house of Israel, should you not know justice, you who hate good and love evil, who tear the skin from my people, the flesh from their bones, who eat my people's flesh, strip off their skin and break their bones in pieces, who chop them up like meat for the pan, like flesh for the pot. He's using a picture, of course, and saying that they absolutely treat with impunity their own fellow Israelites. And those who should have given moral leadership, judges, priests and prophets, are in the pay of the rich. Chapter 3, verse 11. Her leaders judge for a bribe, her priests teach for a price, her prophets tell fortunes for money, yet they lean on the Lord and say, is not the Lord among us, no disaster will come among us. Now imagine living in that kind of society. So the question we come back to again is, living in such hard times, what can an individual do? Matter's answer is, I will respond to the promptings of the Spirit of God and I'm prepared to stand up and speak up. Chapter 3, verse 8. But as for me, as opposed to these false prophets, I am filled with power, with the Spirit of the Lord, with justice and might to declare to Jacob his transgression, to Israel his sin. Unlike the false prophets, who would only say what they're paid to say, Micah is, along with a few other prophets, where he was a contemporary with Isaiah, He's prepared to stand up and speak up to say what the Lord has shown him. And that's what we find in this book of Micah, in these seven chapters. So, let's just turn and have a look at some of the kind of things that he spoke about in these messages. The messages of Micah, he describes them as the vision he saw concerning Samaria and Jerusalem. Now, these were spoken over a long period of time. Uh, they show signs of being carefully collected and prepared. If you look at the opening chapter there, you'll see there's lots of little footnotes. We don't have time to look at them, but Isaiah was very fond of puns, of praise on words in his speech. And unless you know Hebrew, you won't work them out, but he, he, he was very clever in the way that he spoke. 
Now we don't have time to look at all seven chapters in detail, you'd probably be glad to know in the time that's available to us, but as you look at these seven chapters, there's a kind of repeated cycle in them. Messages of judgment, followed by messages of hope. And there are basically three cycles in the book. Judgment, hope, judgment, hope, judgment, hope. So I want to just try and look at them very briefly, and then draw together what we're meant to learn from them. The first one you'll find, the first cycle, is in chapter 1, verse 2, through to chapter 2, verse 13. Micah begins by warning the people of Israel, that's in the north, that the Lord is coming to judge them because of their sins. And he says the city of Samaria is going to be destroyed. Micah 1 verse 6, Therefore I will make Samaria a heap of rubble, a place for planting vineyards. I will pour her stones into the valley, lay bare her foundations. Now, we read that and we say, yeah, so what? But imagine somebody standing up and saying, Edinburgh's going to be reduced to rubble. I mean, you'd think they were off their heads, wouldn't you? This is well before it actually happens. And he says the children are going to be carried off into exile. Verse 16 of chapter 1. Shave your heads in mourning for the children in whom you delight. Make yourselves as bold as a vulture, for they will go from you into exile. Now, Michael lived to actually see happen what he had said. All these other prophets are saying, Rubbish! The Lord is with us! This will never happen! In 721 BC, King Shalmanes of Assyria came up with his army, this terrible Assyrian army. He besieged the city of Samaria, conquered it, knocked it to pieces, carried off the people into exile. And the terrible events are recorded in the Bible and in other histories in 2 Kings chapter 17. But despite this, as you come to the end of this first section, this first cycle, Micah has a message of hope. Chapter 2, verse 12. He says there will be a remnant of people who will be saved and restored. I will surely gather all of you, O Jacob. I will surely bring together the remnant of Israel. I will bring them together like sheep in a pen, like a flock in its pasture. The place will throng with people. And he says, I'll send a leader who will prepare the way for you. Verse 13. One who breaks open the way will go up before them. They will break through the gate and go out. Their king will pass through before them, the Lord at their head. So notice it ends with a message of hope. And this was partially fulfilled, not for another 200 years or so, when the people of Judah returned to the land after their own exile in 538 BC. But the final fulfilment of all this still awaits in the future. Look at the second cycle that begins in the passage we read in chapter 3. Going very quickly through this, try and grasp the overall message. This is addressed to the leaders of the nation of Judah where Micah lived. They complacently assume, despite what has happened to Samaria, they say it will never happen to us. No disaster will come upon us. Chapter 3, verse 11. But they too face judgment. He says, like Samaria, Jerusalem will also be destroyed along with its temple. Now, this is even more fantastic, because the people of Israel believed that their temple and city were inviolate. God had promised nothing would ever happen to them. They'd be there for eternity. And here's this prophet standing up and saying, No, that was conditional on your obedience. You've turned against God. Your city will be destroyed. 
chapter 3, verse 12, because of you, leaders, Zion will be plowed like a field, Jerusalem will become a heap of rubble, the temple hill, a mound overgrown with thickets. Now, Michael lists to see this almost happen. Very interesting history. In 701 BC, I hope you like history, if you don't, this is not very helpful, but if you do, in 701 BC, the Assyrian army laid siege to Jerusalem this time. The king was called Sennacherib. He was the most bloodthirsty and vicious of the whole lot of these kings of Assyria. He sent envoys and said to the people in Jerusalem, Give up! Surrender! Or else! And the king, Hezekiah, was a good king. He was tempted to listen. But Micah and Isaiah, his contemporaries, said, Don't listen to him. Stand up. Trust the Lord. From the most remarkable stories in the Bible. Remarkable event. You read it in 2 Kings chapter 18. The army is besieging the city. A huge army. That night, the angel of the Lord went out and put to death 185,000 men in the Assyrian camp. When the people got up the next morning, there were all the dead bodies. So Sennacherib, king of Assyria, broke camp and withdrew. He returned to Nineveh and stayed there. Now, should you think this is only in the Bible, the Greek historian Herodotus records the same event. And he said it was caused by a bubonic plague. But whatever caused it, it was a dramatic event. The sad thing is, imagine you're Micah, you've lived through all this, Samaria's been destroyed. You preach against Jerusalem. The people seem to listen. You've got this good king Hezekiah who turns back to the Lord and then what happens? He wavers in his commitment. And even while he's still alive, he's succeeded by his son Manasseh who's very evil and he undoes all the reforms that his father had instituted and turns back to paganism and turns against the Lord. And a century later, all that Michael prophesied came to pass in Jerusalem. Very interesting part of the Bible. Another great prophet at this time, this is way back in about 590 BC, another great prophet from the Bible, Jeremiah, says the same thing as Michael. He says, this city is going to be destroyed. And the leaders of Jerusalem call him a traitor. And they're about to execute him when something interesting happens. If you've got your Bibles, because you're all looking a bit understandably blah, turn to page 786. Keep, keep your finger in Micah, but turn back to page 786, Jeremiah 26. The rustling of pages, no, you're still with me. Jeremiah 26, verse 17. Well, verse 16, Jeremiah has spoken, and the officials and all the people said to the priests and the prophets, This man should not be sentenced to death. He has spoken to us in the name of the Lord our God. And some of the elders of the land stepped forward and said to the entire assembly of the people, Micah of Moresheth prophesied in the days of Hezekiah, king of Judah, he told all the people of Judah, this is what the Lord Almighty says, Zion will be like a plowed field, Jerusalem will become a heap of rubble, the temple hill a mound overgrown with thickets. Did Hezekiah, king of Judah, or anyone else in Judah put him to death? 
Did not Hezekiah fear the Lord and seek his favor, and did not the Lord relent so that he did not bring the disaster he pronounced against him? We're about to bring a terrible disaster on ourselves. Now notice, very interesting, a hundred years later, people still recorded and remembered what Micah had said. And despite all this, although Jeremiah's life was saved, the city of Jerusalem was not. In 586, the Babylonian army, another army, marched in and destroyed the city and its temple. And you can read that in 2 Kings 25. But that was not the end of the story for Jerusalem. For Martha then again turns to a message of hope in chapter 4. That beautiful passage we read, which you'll also find in the book of Isaiah, chapter 2, Micah prophesies a day when Jerusalem will be exalted again among all the nations, and people will be drawn in to hear the word of the Lord. All the nations will come and say, Teach us about your God. Chapter 4, verse 1, In the last days, the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as chief among the mountains. It will be raised above the hills. People will stream to it. It will be a day of universal peace and blessing. A day which is not yet being fulfilled. However, Micah does promise something which has been fulfilled. He promises a ruler who will lead his people. And he even specifies where he will be born. Now this should bring echoes to you if you've ever read the Christmas story. Look at Micah 5 verse 2. But you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, Though you are small and in the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me, one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from as old, from ancient times. You remember when the wise men came to King Herod in Jerusalem and said, Where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? And he didn't know, and he said to the religious leaders, Where will the king of the Jews be born? And they said, Oh, everybody knows that. It's in Micah chapter 5, verse 2. He'll be born in Bethlehem, Ephrathah. And so it was to Bethlehem that they came and found Jesus. Here is the fulfillment of this ancient prophet, all these hundreds of years before Christ, pointing forward 700 years to the day and the place where Jesus would be born. It was fulfilled in the birth of Jesus. Finally we come to the third and final cycle of judgment and hope. Chapter 6 and 7, getting towards the conclusion. Stay with me. The Lord states his case against Israel again. Chapter 6, verse 1. Listen to what the Lord says. Stand up, plead your case before the mountains. Let the hills hear what you have to say. Hear, O mountains, the Lord's accusation. Listen, you everlasting foundations of the earth, for the Lord has a case against his people. He's lodging a charge against Israel. The Lord says to him, Why have you rejected me? I'm the one who led you out of Egypt. I've looked after you all these generations, all these centuries. And the Lord says, you are guilty of abandoning me. And the punishment will be ruin and derision. Chapter 6, verse 16. Therefore I will give you over to ruin your people to derision. You will be at the scorn of the nations. You will bear the scorn of the nations. And the result is, he said, all of your society will begin to disintegrate. It will all fall apart because you rejected the Lord. Micah 7 verse 5 Do not trust a neighbour. Put no confidence in a friend. Even with her who lies in your embrace, be careful of your words. You won't be able to trust anybody. <coughs> For a son dishonest his father, a daughter rises up against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, a man's enemies are the members of his own household. 
Now, very interestingly, the Lord Jesus Christ quoted from this when he talked about the effect of his own ministry and what it would do to families. Matthew 10.34, Jesus said, Don't suppose I've come to bring peace on the earth. I didn't come to bring peace but a sword, for I've come to turn a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, a man's enemies will be the members of his own household. But this prophecy of Micah finally does not end in judgment and despair, but again in hope in chapter 7. Micah finishes by saying, I'm looking forward in hope. Micah 7 verse 7. But as for me, I watch in hope for the Lord. I wait for God my Saviour. My God will hear me. Concluding on a personal note, Micah looks forward to the day when his people will be restored. Chapter 7, verse 11. The day for building your walls will come, the day for extending your boundaries. Verse 14. Shepherd your people with your staff, the flock of your inheritance, which live by itself in a forest, in fertile pasture lands. Let them feed in Bashan and Gilead, as in days long ago. More importantly, Micah looks forward to this wonderful day when God will pardon, forgive, and restore his people. These are wonderful verses in verse 18. Who is a God like you? who pardons and forgives the transgression of the remnant of his inheritance. You do not stay angry forever, but delight to show mercy. He says, Lord, you are a God who forgives, a God who pardons, and you are a God who keeps your covenant, your promises. Look at the final verse. You will be true to Jacob. Show mercy to Abraham as you pledged on oath to our fathers in days long ago. So, how do you live in hard times? Well, you need a future hope. You need a hope when you turn on your newspaper, into your newspaper, or switch on the television, and some dreadful event has happened. Maybe you're a spectator, but maybe you live on the island of Mias. Maybe you live in New York in a 9-11 situation. And your whole world seems to disintegrate and fall apart. And you wonder what is happening in the world. Well, the message of the prophets and of Micah, is that there is a future hope. That God has got the world in, under control. That history is not out of control like a runaway horse, but that God is in control. And all of his promises will come to their final fulfillment. Think of all these promises and prophecies that have already been fulfilled. Think of those that are yet to be fulfilled in the final return of the Lord Jesus Christ. When he comes to bring salvation and judgment. The book of Hebrews puts it like this. But now Christ has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to do away with sin by the sacrifice of himself. Just as man is destined to die once and after that to face judgment, so Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many people. That's in the past. And he will appear a second time. This is the future. Not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. Now the question is, is he your saviour? If not, when he comes again, he will be your judge. All the events of history find their fulfilment in the Lord Jesus Christ, God's Son. So here's the conclusion, living through hard times. If you are a Christian, then you have this hope that you're looking forward to. So 
So looking forward to that, how do you live now in the present? You say, well, there's nothing I can do, the world's going down the drain. I better batten down the hatches, close the doors, stay inside the church building, sing hymns and pray and wait for the return of Christ. Are we just observers watching it happen? Or do we have a role to play? What, if anything, should I do? That's the question that Micah asks. Chapter 6. What does God expect of us? With what shall I come before the Lord and bow down before the exalted God? Shall I come to him with burnt offerings? With calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams? With ten thousand rivers of oil? Shall I offer my firstborn for my transgression? The fruit of my body for the sin of my soul and the answer is this God doesn't expect this external kind of religion not horrific things like child sacrifice that was a common view in Micah's day just go through the religious motions that's all God expects of you keep going to church keep all the appearances and you'll be fine rather in the best known verse in this prophecy Micah gives us the Lord's requirements chapter 6 verse 8 He has shown you, O man, what is good. What does the Lord require of you? To act justly, and to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. These three things go together. God expects of us, living through hard times, as individuals, O man, O woman, to act justly, to love mercy, to walk humbly with your God. David Prayer comments, the three qualities hold together. It is only by applying ourselves to the third, walking humbly with God, that we can begin to practice the first two. That is also what it means to love God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength, to love your neighbours yourself. Justice and kindness are, in fact, essential qualities in God himself. They don't come down from heaven wrapped in parcels. They're expressed in and through people who walk humbly with their God. So, what do we do living in hard times? We must be those who speak up like Micah. For justice. Stand up for those who are the victims of injustice, especially those who have no power to speak for themselves. We don't live in a nation state like this, like this world, but we live in a global world. That's why we want to support the Make Poverty History campaign to appeal to world leaders to reduce debt, to introduce fair trade practices, to give aid to poorer nations. That's a lot easier for us than Christians who live in states like this. Imagine being a Christian today in North Korea or in even a place like Zimbabwe where there's so much abuse of human rights. That's why, like NASA, we need to stand up for issues that concern human life at its beginning. Don't let the politicians tell you it's nothing to do with the church issues of abortion and don't mix politics and religion. Of course it is. Issues to do with the end of life. Euthanasia. But we're also those who to love mercy. The word is the word of God's covenant love. And if we're those who experience God's love and mercy, we're to be merciful and to offer it to others to forgive those who have trespassed against us. 
We cannot speak up against abortion unless we're prepared to invest money and resources and practical help for mothers and babies who need support. We cannot speak against euthanasia if we don't support hospices like St. Columbus, which offer dignity for the dying. And we will only be credible if we are those who walk humbly with our God. You see, when you're younger, you've got this idea you're the centre of the world. And all of us need great hopes. But as you go through life, like Marcus, of 50 years, the real testimony is, are we people who simply, quietly, walk humbly with our God? In fellowship with Him. He in fellowship with us. The God who walks with us. What will be our epitaph at the end? Some of us may achieve great things for God. Some of us may even get our names in the newspapers. Some of us God may call to crucial issues, to serve Him in politics, or on these great issues. But for many of us, it's the steady, quiet, humble walk with God that must characterise our lives as we walk with Him day by day and eventually walk with Him for all eternity. That's the challenge of a book like Maka. I hope we take it to heart. Who knows? When you wake up tomorrow morning, what will be the news headlines? But whatever it is, we're to walk humbly with God because we have a hope that extends through all eternity. Let's ask God to help us to do that. Let's pray together.